Hi, Victoria popping in to tell you two quick things about today's episode. The first thing I want to mention is that this is a two-part episode. We're talking about school anxiety, and the conversation was so rich and went to so many different important places that we couldn't fit it into one episode. But part two is also available today. We also wanted to mention that we talk a bit about trauma that can happen at school in today's episode, so I share a little bit about how things like the September 11th attacks and school shootings affected my school anxiety. We mentioned bullying and everything that teachers and students are dealing with around COVID right now. All of the mentions are brief and they're not graphic, but we just wanted to make sure that you knew about some of that content in this episode. Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. We are recording this episode in mid-August, so we are coming up on the end of summer. And also, for many people or for their children, it's back to school time. So we are going to be talking about this seasonal shift that we're entering into, talking a little bit about school anxiety, Um, things that might be coming up at this time of year, especially for people in our hemisphere where we're moving from summer into autumn. So what always comes to mind during this transition from summer into autumn is the quote that I've quoted from many times from Charlotte's Web. And I will quote from it now. The crickets sang in the grasses. They sang the song of summer's ending. A sad, monotonous song. Summer is over and gone, they sang. Over and gone, over and gone. Summer is dying, dying. The crickets felt it was their duty to warn everybody that summertime cannot last forever. Even on the most beautiful days in the whole year, the days when summer is changing into fall, the crickets spread the rumor of sadness and change. It's such a beautiful passage, and I think for anyone who lives in a place where we hear crickets at the end of the summer, it's just mm. it's just a visceral feeling that you get when you hear that sound. Yes, yes. And the image I get when I think of Charlotte's Web is of the girl, What's the, who's the main character? Oh, Fern. Fern, and waiting for the bus and it's it's all intersecting with the with the story of she has to go back to school and how is she going to take care of this little piglet and and her mother standing at the window looking out the window watching her daughter waiting for the school bus and i think that's when the quote comes so for me in my mind there's there's it's the conflation i feel those two experiences conflating of summer's ending specifically with that quote and the school bus coming. And in fact, this morning, and I was just telling you, Victoria, before we started recording, we were, we just got back from our vacation and Asher was coming downstairs and he's, he heard a sound outside and he said, is that the school bus? (laughs) And I said, oh my gosh, it's the school bus, which of course, and we can get to this later, takes on a whole new meaning at this time, particular time that we're in, in COVID, um, in terms of kids actually going back to school in person. Um, such uh, many additional layers of anxiety that I think are present right now in 2021. Yeah, it was really interesting for me to reflect on this subject before recording because I haven't had a first day of school in, I guess, about nine years since I was in college, Hmm. and I don't have children, so I've been a little bit disconnected from it. I obviously get that, that feeling, but I think last year was the first time I started to really appreciate August because... I was working from home, so more in touch with the seasons than when I was just in a freezing cold office every day of the year. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the dread of a new school year that I would often have as a kid. So I was just appreciating the beauty of the flowers that bloom in August and the light and just 
really soaking in the end of summer. So, Mm. like I said, I, as a kid, had a lot of dread about the new school year. I think particularly as I got a little bit older. So, Mm -hmm. I would have some excitement as a kid about buying a new Lisa Frank folder or um, (laughs) getting a new outfit for the first day of school, but I also just had a lot of dread. So every year when summer was ending and the school year was about to begin, I would feel this anxiety and this dread because I just didn't like change. Mm. I would say that a lot as a kid. I would just say, I just don't like change. And I had a hard time letting go of the previous grade, the teacher, the class, or even the previous school if I was moving from elementary to middle school or middle to high school. Mm-hmm. And I would tell myself every year, and I remember this particularly in middle school, I would say, if you still hate it and if it still feels unbearable by Halloween, you can ask to be homeschooled. <laughs> And this was just a coping mechanism that I had that I I don't even think it was really an option <laughs> to be homeschooled. I just kind mm-hmm. of told myself, like, if it's still this unbearable, this uncomfortable, if you're still this anxious, you can ask to be homeschooled at the end of October. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, in every case except for one year, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I felt better by Halloween. Things mm. felt more familiar. Like the new the new shoes I had gotten for the new year were broken in. Mm. The the hallway floors of the school were scuffed up and mm. things just felt more broken in and, fami- and familiar. Yeah, I just want to underscore a couple of pieces from that story which is how important it is for highly sensitive people to own and claim and name that statement. I don't like change. I'm guessing there are some people in the world that actually like change, (laughs) but I don't come into contact with them very frequently. Um, Highly sensitive people do not like change. And so even when it's a positive change, Even when it's moving towards something that you are excited about, it's still a change and it still requires leaving something familiar behind. Even if the thing you're leaving behind is something you don't like at all. So just to keep stating that to oneself, or if you have children that are starting school for the first time or going back to school and dreading it, to validate for them Of course you are feeling anxious or a sense of dread because you don't like change or you struggle with change. But I I think even I don't like change is more succinct, is more clear than I struggle with change. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then the struggle indicates that like maybe I shouldn't be struggling with change. Right. Right? As opposed to a preference. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) And just claiming that. And I just love that as a younger person, you just stood in those shoes. I don't like change. I'm not even apologizing for it. (laughs) I don't like change. I am sad. And, and, And it just encapsulates so beautifully and so simply the core of Everything I talk about around transitions, I am sad, like just in like second grade terms, right? Or as a kindergarten terms, I am sad to leave what's familiar and I don't like change. So it's claiming the truth. I don't like change. Naming the emotion. I feel sad and trusting that when we make infinite space for Those two experiences, the the context and the emotion embedded inside the context, that we open up the pathways for the excitement and the joy to to be available to us. So I want to underscore that piece. I don't like change. That's our mantra. (laughs) And, (laughs) And then that you also, brilliantly as a young person, gave yourself the escape hatch clause 
If I still hate it and if it feels absolutely unbearable by Halloween, I can ask to be homeschooled. And then, invariably, except for that one year, you felt better by Halloween. And that too is a really important coping mechanism for the highly sensitive person, which is why I think situations where there is no escape hatch um, can cause a lot of anxiety and sometimes panic. Yeah. Right? But even though you knew that wasn't even really a possibility, just to know in your mind that it was a possibility gave you the freedom to take it one stage at a time. And you even, you had a bracket around it, right? It was until October 31st. So that was maybe like six or seven weeks you gave yourself, right? And that's about how long it took for you to to find your school legs, right? So the answer wasn't, I'm going to not go to school or from a parent's perspective, I'm going to pull my child out of school because they're crying and they're upset and they're dreading it. That's not necessarily the answer unless there is true cause, like an unsafe situation or a true lack of readiness. But it's a really good strategy for working with what's real and present around going back to school. And for some kids and and some families, that might not work to say that out loud. If you hate it by October 31st, (laughs) you know, Diana, then we'll pull you out. And then like October 31st comes and they're like, I hate it. You said I could be homeschooled. If my parents had said it, I'd be like, I'm holding you to that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So making that space for the pain, naming what is, um, and you know, and I'm watching my two kids right now. They are going back to school on Friday. So the day that this podcast will be published, um, today's Monday, they'll be going back on Friday. And I'm just watching how differently they're navigating this. Um, and they are also almost five years apart. So five years ago, Everest, our older son, may have been more like Asher, I don't know. It's hard to say. They, they are very similar in some ways. They're both highly, highly sensitive people, but um, they also have very different temperaments in other ways. And they are five years apart. So Everest, <laughs> we were driving somewhere today. He was, he was driving me and he said, oh, I can't wait to go back to school. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, how many kids do you think are saying that right now? And I'm like, um, maybe like 1%. I don't know, like a really <laughs> small number. And he's like, yeah, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm excited for my classes and I'm excited to meet new people. And, you know, this is just shocking to me. Um, and then we have Asher who is like starting a couple weeks ago, as soon as we heard the crickets, that was literally the moment where he said, Summer's ending. Oh no, I don't want to go back to school. I want to be homeschooled again. And so if it's been up, you know, we're talking about it. What are you dreading? What are you what are you most not looking forward to? Are there any aspects that you are looking forward to? But hearing that story, Victoria, it's like it's important for us to flesh it out with Asher, but it really just kind of sums it up to just keep saying to him, Yeah, you don't like change. Right? And It's going to take time for you to readjust. It's that readjustment that is hard for highly sensitive people where we, like we talked about with the travel episode, where we like our routines. We just like it the way it is, even if the way it is isn't fantastic, even though he was bored out of his mind all summer. And (laughs) Dave and I are looking at him saying, but you were so much happier during the school year. Nope doesn't matter. None of that matters. None of that's going to penetrate for him. What penetrates is he's focusing on the work, the hard parts, math, and the homework, even though it's not a lot at the school where he's at. And then just that bigger context of, but I'm just leaving the freedom of summer, the familiarity of summer, the routines that I've established in summer. Yeah. And for me, definitely the comfort, the comfort of being home. You know, there's always just been nothing like it for me. So, (laughs) Uh, and for Asher, nothing like it. Yeah. Nothing like it. No place like home. I mean, there's, there's another key, key archetypal phrase, right? That Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz just 
nailed it. There is no place like home. You can go on these odysseys and adventures like we just came back. And, you know, but what's interesting, Victoria, is that even when we were in Los Angeles for our vacation, Asher was having such a good time. It was actually the first time he said, I don't want to go home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe something's shifting, but I think it's more about now I'm now I'm settled here. Yes. Right? Now we have our routines here. So now I have to pick up and like ah oh, transition all over again. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as it gets broken in, more comfortable, more familiar. Yes. We can attach yes. and settle and fall in love with wherever we're at. So Yes. Yes. That makes so much sense to me. And I know some people listening don't have children or don't have children going to school or, you know, are are not going to school themselves. In your book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, (laughs) (laughs) you talk about the season of autumn and specifically the month of September and some Mm. of the feelings that come up. So there is that dread that people like Asher and I might feel. There's the Mm -hmm. excitement that people like Everest and even, you know, my older sister Amanda was always so excited to go back to school. My (laughs) youngest sister, Sophia, she's 15 right now and she's really excited to go back to school. So there's the dread or the excitement, but I'm wondering if you could talk more about specifically some of the feelings that might come up for people at this time of year, whether or not they have children, or really have a close link to school now. Yes. So autumn is such a nostalgic season, and it's the time of, you know, memories and letting go, loss. A lot of that comes up in these August, September, October months in particular. So while we are sharing this in August, it's very much relevant for September and even into October. It's the time of year that evokes those school memories. September for me was when school started as well when I was a kid. I don't know why they keep pushing it. They keep edging into summer here in Colorado and I think even on the West Coast. Um, But it was September for me as a child. And so even before I had kids, September would evoke school. And then we homeschooled for many, many years. And so those school memories were not quite on the surface the way that they are now with my kids actually going to school. And for most people I work with, school carries a lot of painful memories, whether it's extreme pain and on the extreme trauma scale of severe bullying, daily bullying. I have a lot of clients who find their way to me for whom that was their experience. Um, And And as we are widening our definition of bullying to understand that it's not just, you know, being beat up every day, but it's being teased, being mocked, um, being ostracized, all the social bullying that takes place that is absolutely heart-wrenching, cuts to the very core of who we are as humans and our need to belong and to be accepted by peers. Um, So there's a lot of pain that can come up. That's the more extreme end of what can happen in school. Um, other kinds of trauma around, around, let's say your learning style does not fit at all with the mainstream learning style. Let's say you're dyslexic and you are always feeling stupid or called stupid, even by teachers sometimes. Um, and I think these days there's a lot more understanding and education about things like dyslexia and different learning styles. But Nevertheless, you know, that, that was, that was, that was not in the mainstream, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So a lot of pain for people around their intelligence, around, um, around their social acceptability. Am I being accepted socially? Um, and then there's the whole separation piece that I think is so important to talk about. And again, for kids who are going back to school, parents watching their kids go to school. And then I have a lot of clients right now whose kids are starting kindergarten. So going to school for the very first time, and it's an enormous transition for the child and for the parents both. 
So that separation piece, to me, this time of year, when I think about school, even though for even though I loved school through elementary school, truly, truly loved it. It was like summer camp to me. Um, still, when I my sense memory of it is is one of separation anxiety, and that's probably goes back to my first day of school in kindergarten, but then also that transition into into junior high, which was seventh grade back then. Um, that was absolutely excruciating for me. And that's sort of the feeling I'm left with. And so as always, when I'm when we're talking about transition, it's it's loss begets loss, it's memories magnetized to other memories. And so it's allowing ourselves to open to this particular topic and conversation, even though it's so painful for many, many people, that's where the healing opportunity is that as the window of autumn opens, as we walk through this portal, we are going to dream about school. We are going to have that sense memory, those memories rise up inside of us. And the tendency is to push it away. That's what we do with pain. We push it away. But the invitation, the opportunity is to move toward it and bring that inner parent to the table and journal it through or speak it aloud or write a poem or let yourself time travel back to that 11-year-old or that 5-year-old or that 15-year-old who was suffering and imagining what it would have been like to have a loving adult figure sitting with you, going through those experiences with you, being able to be with you in the pain and if necessary, pull you out of the pain if it was a bullying situation, that there would have been someone that could have protected you. Now, of course, we can't rewrite the past. We can't redo the past. We can't make it different in actual reality. But that's not what healing work is about. Healing work takes place in that transcendent, timeless realm where we recognize that the ground of our being opens up during transitions there's a portal, there's an earthquake. And so we're naming the one that's happening now, August into, into September, around school, recognizing the opportunity to heal some layers of that old pain. Yeah, you know, in talking about these more painful experiences and and also specifically like the sensory memory around September, mm -hmm. I definitely have some experiences that stick out and that really colored the rest of my, my school years in terms of exacerbating my anxiety. Mm. When I was in fifth grade, that's when the September 11th attacks happened. Mm. So I was 10 years old and I grew up in New Jersey in a suburb where a lot of our parents worked in New York City, and um, there were 32 residents from Middletown, the district where I went to school, um, who died on September 11th. And <sighs> I remember getting pulled out of school that day because my mom didn't know what was going on and um, mm. wanted her kids with her. And my anxiety was just went through the roof after that day. Yes. And I always felt a lot of shame about it because I didn't lose a parent. There was no one that I knew directly. Mm. But there were kids who lost a parent. Uh, and just that knowledge mm. and the suddenness and the unbelievable, how could this happen? <laughs> mm -hmm. The next year when I started middle school, that's when I, I started like refusing to go to school. <laughs> Yes. So I was late to school every day for, I don't know, the first few months. And the guidance counselor had to come get me from the car every morning. Mm. And I think it was twofold. It was, there was this hor horrific thing that happened in the wider world. And then there was mm. the transition of going, leaving elementary school and going into middle school. Mm. Mm. And then it just so happened that my freshman year of high school, 
in September. It was like one of the first days of school, I think. And it was around the same time, like 9 a.m. I was sitting in my French class and there was a, the click of the loudspeaker and the principal said, this is a lockdown. And suddenly, you know, my teacher locked the door, pulled the shades, turned out the lights were all under a counter and didn't know what was going on. And I think we were like that for 40 minutes. And it turned out that it was like someone hijacked a car on the Garden State Parkway and then hid in the woods behind our school. Um, And luckily, everything was fine. I I don't think he was like, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody at the school. It was Mm -hmm. just that the police, you know, had to come. But we didn't know what was going on. And again, I was like a wreck after this happened. Yes. And also felt really ashamed because nothing bad actually did happen. Why was I having such a hard time with this? All the other kids were laughing about it. Hmm. And we went on to have a couple of bomb threats that same year at school. I almost got frostbite during one of them because they sent us onto the football field without our coats in January. So. (laughs) Wow. Wow. The thing it's, what it's making me think about, Victoria, is those were such extreme traumatic events that shaped your school experience. It's not so different from what kids are dealing with now with COVID. Yeah. Right. It's just that COVID is more diffuse. It's more of this invisible enemy. Like we don't, yeah. we don't know where it's going to come out. We don't know, right, if, if someone's going to get it or not. But it has taken over our world. And we all know it's the young people who are suffering. I don't want to say the most, but they are suffering a lot. Um, these are their formative years. Right. So many of them have only ever gone to school wearing masks. Like how, what, what, what is this doing to our psychology? And, and I think it's so important to name, just to name this piece that COVID is in a sense, um, I mean, it, you can't, we can't compare traumas, right? But I know because of the number of teenagers that I'm connected to, the ways that it has affected teens and young people, not just teens, all, anyone, any school-age kid, um, it's, it's, it's a diverse way that it affects people. And some kids have been totally fine, and they've been happy to be online, and that's great. But I would not say that's the majority. So we have kids struggling with social anxiety, right? Kids who are just like, wait a minute, I was just kind of getting my social footing And now I'm a 14-year-old girl, which is hard enough as it is, but now I'm a 14-year-old girl who hasn't really been around any other kids in a year and a half. And I'm supposed to just go start high school now? How do I do that? Right? Or um, like Everest, who is such a resilient, basically happy person, but we were just talking last night about how his high school experience would have been dramatically different had it not been for COVID. You know, he started out going to public school in 10th grade and he was so excited to be in that big environment with lots of people, a thousand kids and um, to be taking all these different classes and have access to clubs and sports and events and dances and what high school is, you know, what, what we hope it would be. So he had all this excitement about it and then COVID hit and he was online and he is not the kid that does well online. And he was depressed for the first time in his life. It was situational depression that did not work for him at all. And then it caused us to reevaluate and say, where else, what, what might be a better fit for him given these circumstances? So I don't really know any person, any school-age person who hasn't had some negative effect. I'm sure they're out there. And I know that there are kids who, who liked online school and who may stay online if it's still an option because that might actually be a better fit for them. But I think what you're bringing up, Victoria, is for you, those were life-altering events in terms of, and I, and I, hear, the, I hear the comparative voice coming in saying, but I didn't lose anybody to 9-11 and I was fine and everything worked out. And so we're just going to, walk that voice to the door. Mm -hmm. Um, Because for you, 
It was deeply impactful and terrifying. And of course it was. Of course it was terrifying. And so now we're in some kind of analogous situation where we are navigating brand new territory and most kids are going back in person, I think wearing masks, I don't really know, you know, nationwide or worldwide what everybody's doing, but, um, but it's, it's a huge transition on top of the already huge transition of just going back to school in, you know, nor- regular times. Yeah. And I just, you know, I had a lot of separation anxiety as a kid. So that was already really, really hard for me from the time I was like four going to preschool onwards. And I know that that played into my response to a lot of these things. And like, I already kind of was really anxious and didn't like feel safe. So those things just went, just made me go, oh, see, it's not safe. Like (laughs) anything terrible can happen. But I I just, I keep thinking about the students in school right now who are really scared of COVID. Like, because I know there are a lot of kids struggling with, I want to be in person and Mm -hmm. I don't want to have any of these restrictions. And that's really hard. And I, if I were a student now, I would have a lot of anxiety about getting sick or getting someone in my family sick. And my heart really goes out to those kids because I just know like when I was struggling to go to school in high school, because I was like, I got really freaked out by that lockdown and those bomb threats. And I'm really scared to go to school now. Yes. And I remember telling the psychologist that I was seeing and she was like, you're not the only one. Yes. And I was like, well, that's news to me because everyone else is like, get over it. Like, what is the big deal? Why are you scared of this thing? Yes, a hundred percent. And I think this is where hopefully more awareness around the highly sensitive child can come in to the educational system. I was mentioning to you earlier, I get a lot of teachers um, who find their way to my work, which makes perfect sense to me because teachers are highly empathic, compassionate people drawn to a path of service. Does teachers often say to me, I know, I, I wish I could work with my with the children in my classes differently. I wish my classes were smaller. I wish I could attend more to their emotional lives. I wish um, I could focus more on things that I know really matter. But I think just having the awareness that there are going to be children in your classes that are highly sensitive, that are scared of COVID, that are scared of getting sick or to be the one that brings it back to their family, to their elderly grandfather or grandmother or just their parents, anybody in their lives. Being able to name that, to make room for that, to have a circle, to have a conversation. Um, what, what, What came to mind earlier, Victoria, when you were talking about what happened in 9-11 and then the lockdown, the bomb threats. So a couple things. First of all, just to name, oh my goodness, what times we are living in and what, what it is to be a young person. Because none of this was going on when I was growing up. There were no school shootings. Columbine hadn't happened. 9-11 hadn't happened. There is not like, okay, we have to go over our lockdown and bomb threat procedures. Like, what in the world have we come to? So for for the most resilient, typically wired kid, this is still a lot to ask of any child to navigate this world as we know it today. But for a highly sensitive child... It's exponentially higher. The stakes are higher. What we are asking of them is higher. Where it, how it registers in their nervous system is much higher than a typically wired child. So they are also dealing with what we are already had in terms of bomb threats and lockdowns and emergency procedures. And But now there's also COVID. So... 
for parents or teachers listening to to name it, to bring it into the conversation. But I think this is where teachers can carry a very special role in terms of being being that that ritual leader, holding the space of a circle, giving the kids um, um, five minutes to each go around and just kind of say, how are you feeling about being here? Um, to, to name some key phrases of like, this, this might be scary for some of you, or this is different. This is, what is this like for you? To give some language, to give some words so that for the highly sensitive ones, especially they're not left carrying that burden all by themselves, which as we know, can quickly morph into shame of, I am the only one, like you were feeling, Victoria. Like when the person said it to you of, oh, I'm sure you're not the only one. I know you're not. You were thinking, what? But nobody else is talking about it. I must be the only one. So then we have that additional layer that we often talk about. We have the the, the first feeling of, I'm scared. And then we have the overlay of shame. And what's wrong with me for feeling scared because everybody else seems fine. It's such a tricky thing talking about things in school because kids don't want to put themselves out there because honestly, it's not really safe usually in front of the other kids. Like probably the kids are not going to be honest (laughs) if they're scared or struggling because the majority of the kids are going to be like, I just don't want to wear this mask or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, What did help me was, you know, I, so I, after that freshman year, that was really hard with all these different incidents that happened, I started having panic attacks for the first time. And I Mm -hmm. ended up doing home instruction my sophomore year because I was just, I just refused to go to school, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a French teacher, Madame Finkelstein, she was coming to my house like twice a week or something to tutor me in French. And then I just felt really comfortable with her. She was not, she never asked me about what was going on really. She just was really kind, a really good teacher. She loved seeing my baby sister, Sophia, who was just one year old at the time. She loved like playing with her. Hmm. And we ended up deciding that I was going to go into school just for her class. It was the last period of the day. She would come to the curb every day and walk me up to her classroom, which was like probably the furthest point from the front doors, like two stories Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And she was Mm -hmm. calm and steady and reliable and kind. And she talked to me about my baby sister and, you know, other things. And and after that school year, I, I went back to school full-time my junior year. And I had mm-hmm. Madame Finkelstein the next two years for French mm-hmm. as well. And at the mm-hmm. end of my senior year, in my AP French class, it was a super small class, one of the students said, Madame, go around and sort us all into Hogwarts houses. Who do you think, you know, like, where would we be? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we even had to tell her like what each house represented the Hogwarts house is from Harry Potter, of course. And she looked at me and kind of like gave me a wink and said Gryffindor. Mm. And that's the house that's, you know, the, the, the dominant trait is bravery. Oh. And oh. I would, I don't, I really don't know what it would have been like for me trying to go back into school without her. Mm. It was just her steady, safe presence that made me feel safe at a time Mm. when I wasn't feeling safe. And it was because she showed up and she accepted me and she Mm. physically walked me into the school every day. Mm. An angel. Yeah. An angel. They are everywhere. You know, I think the piece that's interesting about whether kids feel safe enough to share what's really going on. And I think you're right. I think in most environments, in most school environments, they're not going to feel safe to to be vulnerable. But I still think there's a way to normalize yes. what, what might be happening, even if it's the teacher just writing on the board, these are some common experiences or emotions that yes. a lot of kids are feeling right now. 
or to have kids write it down on a secret note and put it in a box. Yes. Right. And the, and the teacher reads them. Um, and the teacher puts a bunch of their own in there too, to make sure that, um, that the highly sensitive kids are well represented, that it's not just like two out of a 10 saying, I feel scared or I feel anxious or whatever it is. So I think it's, I think it's worth finding ways to name and normalize what kids are experiencing in both the big traumatic times, like what you had to endure, and this more diffuse trauma of what's happening now with COVID, where it's not a, a one-time event like 9-11, but it's just going on and on and on and on and on, and the toll that it's taking. And I would just love to see more psychological awareness, more conversation about what's actually happening. So that's very historically time-specific, right? 9-11, COVID. But imagining if our education system did dedicate more time in general to what's happening emotionally, to, let's say, that first day of school. And I think from what I hear about from my clients, I actually see so much more emotional intelligence happening in school systems than ever before. Um, it's not that it's made it like all across the country in every city, but I think in major cities, there is definitely a trend toward bringing that emotion, social emotional piece into the classroom, teachers being more educated, administrators, principals being more educated about the critical importance of making room for and attending to that aspect of a child's world, of their inner life, their emotional life. So that's very heartening to me because I do hear, I do hear about that. Um, you know, I see some of it in my kids' school, but I'm here, I hear more about it in the elementary school years, which is fantastic. Yeah. And there's definitely more awareness around you know, you brought up bullying and I, I wasn't a target for bullying. I definitely didn't feel cool. And there were times when maybe, maybe I got teased a little bit or someone was like snickering, but I was not a target of bullying, but I very much remember the kids who were, and I very much remember that it was racist. It was homophobic. It mm. was classist. It was ableist. Mm. I grew up in a really, really white town. Mm. And, you know, if there was one child who was black in my elementary school, you bet that kid was bullied. Mm. Thinking back on that, there's like the sorrow of not intervening, even as a kid, you mm. know, um, the sorrow of, mm. of course it was the only girl who was Puerto Rican and, and her father was a garbage collector and mm. the kids all said she smelled, Ugh. you know, and called her names. Um, so painful. That stuff happened a lot at my school. Mm. And I hope, I think there's more awareness around it, but I'm sure there's still a long way to go in a lot of places. So I can imagine that for the kids who are receiving that and even the kids witnessing it and wishing that they could do more, but like they don't really know how to without getting bullied themselves. Um, yes. That's also really painful. <sighs> so painful. It also brings to mind the way that you phrased it of, I wasn't bullied myself. I wasn't cool, but I wasn't bullied the experience that I hear a lot, so I, I, like I said, I have a lot of clients who were severely bullied day after day, and the scars that it leaves it runs deep, very, very deep into one's sense of self, one's sense of belonging, self-worth, um, because there's a particular trauma that happens when we are, when we endure that kind of pain at the hands of our peers, the people that we are looking to for our, to know that we belong. They are our tribe. But I also have a lot of clients and I would put myself in this category and it sounds like you are in this category too, where I wasn't overtly bullied, 
But when I think about my 7th through 12th grade years, and this wasn't the case in elementary school, which to me was like summer camp, but 7th through 12th grade years, the overarching feeling, even though there were times when I had really good friends um, and my best friend, one of my best friends who I made in sixth grade, I had all through those years and still to this day, but the overarching feeling was one of loneliness, um, of not belonging, not feeling like I belonged. And I went through some extremely, excruciatingly painful social events um, in, well, there were some in seventh grade and then there were some in 10th, 11th grade. And by my 11th grade year, I was down to like one friend, maybe two friends. And by my senior year, it was like one friend. And I ate lunch many days by myself. And it's a long, complicated story about how that all came to be that has to do with some stuff with my family of origin and boundary issues. And it's and it's, it's very complicated what happened there and why I lost all my friends. But the feeling was one of loneliness. And that's not an unusual feeling to think back to those school years. Even when one has a lot of friends, there's still that feeling for a lot of people in the teenage years and in the preteen years of, I don't belong. These are, I don't, I haven't found my tribe. I haven't found my people. And I mean, to be honest, I don't know if I've still found my, my tribe, like in like, I don't have 12 friends, but I certainly have plenty of people where, who I feel seen by and who I see deeply. And there's that deep sense of attachment and belonging. So I think what comes up for a lot of people in this transitional time, August into September, is that feeling of being on the outside, not feeling good enough socially or academically, um, you know, of not enough, right? It's, it's the theme that runs through all of my work, relationship anxiety, friendship anxiety, just generalized anxiety. I am not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken in some way. And while that doesn't all come about because of our school experiences, you know, there's also family of origin and there's religion and there's media and there's all the ways that we learn that very painful and wrong message of I'm not enough School is certainly a significant contributor, especially when you think about how many hours a day we spend in school. Oh, I can just viscerally feel being in sixth grade and hearing the other kids on my bus making plans to go to the movies and just Mm -hmm. working up all the courage I had and asking if I could come and them being like, Oh, sure. (laughs) And just never feeling. Yeah. Like I really belonged, like they really liked me or wanted me there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Like, you know, you think about the classic kind of you walk into the cafeteria and there's the jocks and there's the drama kids and there's the, I don't know, the student president and the academic team. I don't know. Um, Yes. All the cliques. Yeah. And I still feel like I don't know what table I belong at because Mm. I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. I love singing, but I'm not that, I'm not a musician. You know, I love, you know what I mean? Like, I'm curious about doing the musical, but I never got the courage to audition. Like, I still don't know what table I should sit at. And I do. I know what table. (laughs) It's called the HSP poetry table. (laughs) And I, I don't even say that to be like down on myself. I just think... I wonder how many people 
Mm-hmm. Even the ones that you think, well, clearly you belong at that table. I wonder how many people actually don't know where yes. they should sit or where they really belong. That's right. Because I think anytime we separate ourselves into categories like that, it doesn't make sense because we're not just one thing. We're not just a jock or a computer guy or a, you know, super scholarly academic 4.5 like that. We're not just one thing. And so I imagine, and I say this to my kids a lot, everybody struggles. Whatever you're seeing in these other kids where you think they don't have anxiety or they don't have loneliness or they don't get depressed sometimes, I guarantee you they all have something and they all struggle in some way, maybe not the exact same way that you struggle, but they struggle in their way. And sure enough, as the year went on, we did learn about the different ways that different kids in their classes struggle and the different pains that they and heartaches and transitions and losses that they're going through in their own lives. So it's again, it's sort of breaking down these fantasies and illusions like the, like the breakfast club. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Where in the end, I, mean, I haven't seen that movie in a really long time, but I think the message was, you know, in the end, we have to get beyond all of those labels and these ideas of, of what we think other people's lives are like, right? especially in those early formative years and those school age years where it looks, it sure looked on the outside, like when in my high school experience, that, that those girls in the main clique, that they had it all together, that they were all BFFs. And they knew their place in the world. But when I really look with a more critical lens and a sharper gaze, I, I know that that's not true. It's just how it looked at the time. It's how it felt to me at the time. Thank you so much for listening to part one of our conversation about school anxiety. Part two is available now, where we dive more deeply into how school can help to shape our identities for worse and for better, some of the things that Cheryl and I are grateful for from our school days, and a bit about Cheryl's perspective having homeschooled her sons and now sending them to school. And Cheryl shares some rituals that parents and kids can do together to meet the transition into school and any grief that might be arising. Before you listen to part two, we would so appreciate it if you'd take a moment to subscribe to the show, rate it, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews are so encouraging to us. And share the show with a friend if you think they might enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.